You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 247. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached a lot of Local Maximum. Here we are in fall 2022. Really love the weather out here uh, in the northeast of the U.S. All right. So a lot of politics today, which I know some of you are not happy with. I am. I'm not dropping bombs. I'm not a bomb dropper here in the local maximum, but you might not always like what I have to say. I get it. But sometimes it needs to be said. So that's what we're doing today. But if you stick with me, or at least if you skip ahead and stick with me, we have one of the coolest probability distributions of the week coming up at the end. So please stick around for that. All right, let's get to it. Well, it's official. Elon Musk is the new Trump in one important way, in that he's connected himself to every news story uh, that is going on right now, uh, at least in my world. So good for him, I guess. (laughs) Let's take a closer look. Uh, First, I'm going to start with the topic of Ukraine. I'm going to give a little Ukraine update. Um, We have something of a a battle of the bridges here. Uh, The bridge to Crimea uh, was blown up uh, by the Ukrainians, apparently. That is the one bridge that was uh, attaching, I believe, mainland Russia from Crimea. Uh, Crimea is the the, uh, kind of province on the the Black Sea uh, that has been uh, occupied by Russia since, I believe, 2014 or something like that. Uh, So um, it's, it's definitely disputed territory. It was, you know, historic. Well, uh, it was part of Ukraine post, uh, post-communism. Uh, Russia has, believes they have claims to it historically, uh, although they, you know, they, they endorsed in Ukraine's territorial integrity at one point. Uh, but uh, anyway, they occupy it now. So that, bri- and that bridge was being used uh, to supply the Russian troops. So that bridge was blown up by Ukrainians. Um, and then the glass so-called uh, peace bridge in Kiev, uh, where I was, by the way, I, I visited that area uh, when I was in uh, Kiev, when I was in Ukraine. Uh, I believe I have an episode number on that. Um, <laughs> we can check it out after the show. Uh, but um, uh, th- I, that bridge was really, it's connecting two parts of the city. It's a footbridge. It's not a traffic bridge. It's not an infrastructure bridge. I mean, I guess it could kind of help you get to point A to point B in the city a little faster. But uh, that was blown up uh, by a, a Russian missile, presumably in retaliation for the other bridge, although uh, who knows what the timeline was in, in terms of the decision making. Um, I now have to ask, has the war turned against Russia? Generally, I don't believe the hype around the news reports uh, when, you know, th- there's been report after report saying, oh, the Ukrainian army is doing very well. And I, you know, in, in, in some ways I want to believe it, but I, I don't want to uh, just uh, just uh, believe it if it's said once, if it's if if it's said a few times, and I know it's in our media's interest telling us uh, that Ukraine is winning uh, because we kind of have a dog in that fight. So I don't know if I'm getting the news, but it does seem undeniable at this point that the war has turned, at least for the time being, against the Russians, uh, at least in terms of territory, because the Ukrainian army seems to be uh, advancing in the Donbass. But uh, Russia unfortunately doesn't see any sign of giving up. And now it's calling for more troops and it's stepping up these missiles and bombings. So this is a very concerning situation. Could this be 
a World War One type situation where no one is willing to give up until society is devastated. I really hope not. Um, of course, every story has Musk in it because <laughs> he uh, he proposed a peace deal where um, some of the provinces in the Donbass region can have uh, a vote on whether they can want to join Russia or stay with the Ukraine, and that was. Um, uh, you know, that was uh, considered uh, out of hand, or he was he- heavily criticized by Zelensky for saying that, um, mainly because it was like, well, why should why, why should Russia get this territory when they're the ones who attacked, which I understand. Um, on the other hand, there, there has to be some way to end this thing. Maybe it's impossible. I don't know. Um, on the other hand, the, the you know, Russians did hold a vote in these places, but it, it seems like it's one of those totally rigged votes where they just come in, they bring their own people in, they have their soldiers collecting ballots, and um, I don't know, I can't believe anyone takes those seriously. Uh, it's like, well, what do you know? We won. Uh, but uh, uh, that that cannot be internationally recognized from my point of view. Uh, anyway, we don't talk a lot of geopolitics here in the local maximum, but this is something that's very important that's going on these days, and uh, and obviously something that uh, a lot of people care about and something that I'm following. So um, I just wanted to give you the heads up. Obviously, we had uh, people from Ukraine and Ukrainians who were uh, living there at the time on this uh, podcast. Let me see if I can bring up the episode number there. Um, that was... Um, Episode 219, Voices from Ukraine, and then, you know, episode 215 with uh, Polina Shevchenko. And then, of course, uh, you know, I believe that um, I had the episode where I was actually in Ukraine previously. That would be episode 78. So I don't think I necessarily talked about it that much, but um, that was that was live from Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, but of course, not during the war. That was uh, back in in 2019. Um, yeah, this will be, uh, you know, I usually like to stay set back and say, what can we learn from this? But this is really something awful that's going on and affecting a lot of people. And, um, uh, you know, people I know somewhere I've been, but also like it, it, it seems to be a very important world event. And there's a lot hinging on this right now. Um, of course, people are talking, oh, you know, nuclear disaster, whatever. We've seen that, you know, talk, well, we saw that talk back in 2020, uh, during, you know, the, the, the Soleimani, uh, uh, situation, um, you know, in, in February of 2020. So I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it. I, I do not have the tools to analyze this. Um, Although I feel like neither do some of the people on TV and radio, although some of them are uh, intelligence analysts, which I am not, but, but <laughs> sometimes, I don't know, we'll see if my track record is any better. I don't claim to be any be- any better uh, than they are, but maybe uh, maybe my track record uh, isn't, uh, uh, isn't going to be half bad. All right, so Musk again, Elon Musk, he buys Twitter again. He buys Twitter for the second time. He's like, first, I'm going to buy you. And then if you don't like it, I'm going to buy you again. So we'll see how many times he buys it. Uh, Aaron uh, put a little note for me. He said, genius 3D chess judo move, or did he just F up and realize he was not going to get any additional leverage from the court proceeding that was going on because they're arguing about you know, they were arguing about the company. They were arguing about uh, were there too many bots? Were they? You've all heard this already. And so, um, you know, he, he believes he kind of got into that deal under false pretenses, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, 
it, it's interesting how this whole he's buying it, he's not buying it, he's buying it again affects the media narrative because I feel like the first time there was this big freak out um, and this big, you know, a lot of jubilation for, from some people who have been uh, unfairly treated by Twitter. Um, and then this time, the uh, some of that is still coming out, and we'll get to that in a minute. But also, uh, it's a little bit muted because it's hard to go through the whole thing a second time. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're getting all freaked out and all worked up about something, and then you find out it's not going to happen. And then a few months later, you find out it's happening again. It's hard to get. It really is hard to get worked up for that second time. And I, I don't think that's part of the strategy. But uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe it is. Uh, okay. So one internal critic at. Twitter. A lot of uh, employees at Twitter uh, have been very critical of this internally. One is Raman Chowdhury. Uh, um, she posted a tweet from before. This is from the first time Musk bought Twitter. Uh, she wrote, this is going to sound funny, but Musk's immediate chilling effect was something that bothered me significantly. Twitter has a beautiful culture of hilarious constructive criticism, and I saw that go silent because of his minions attacking employees. So this was posted in April, and she recently retweeted this again. So Roman obviously feels strongly about this, but and, and this is a tweet that's been getting a lot of traction, but it, it raises so many questions. Um, First of all, like hilarious constructive criticism. Uh, constructive criticism could be tough, even when done properly. So I don't know. I I don't believe it could always be hilarious. Um, and it, if it was characterized as like, okay, Elon Musk and his trolls went on Twitter and started trolling us, how does that stifle internal debate? Like, it's not like people are so upset that there's a lot of uh, criticism of Twitter on Twitter. Uh, there's always been. You know, in 2012, there was. In 20, uh, in 2010, there was. Uh, at least by 2012, it was getting pretty, I'm pretty sure, from before. Um, so I don't see why this particular thing would cause constructive criticism to go silent. So again, uh, perhaps, um, you know, Musk's buying of Twitter was encouraging the pro-Musk people internally to raise their opinions and raise their objections of some of the things that Twitter was doing, particularly around moderation, which is, and, and you know, content control, which is um, what uh, this person, Chowdhury, is, is, is working on and, you know, might be one of the people who are let go by Elon Musk. Uh, so, you know, it's natural to be pretty upset about that. Um, but, because it kind of maybe emboldened people internally who were now providing criticism who didn't provide criticism before, it might feel like from the people who were um, uh, who were in charge, it might feel like now they're coming under attack and now that the constructive criticism that they were getting before was kind of like, uh, you know, small problems that they could maybe fix and maybe not hurt their ego too much. But now they're they're hearing larger problems and... It, it feels like an attack, and it could feel like, um, you know, maybe there's more constructive criticism going on, but uh, it, it, it doesn't feel it, it doesn't feel as nice as what they thought was really great constructive criticism beforehand. So we'll see. Or it could be constructive criticism that um, it could be criticism internally that a lot of employees don't want to uh, hear. Because when you say we have a great uh, uh, culture of constructive criticism, I think it means that, hey, we take criticism and we implement it. Maybe they're hearing things now that they 
do not want to implement or they can't implement. And that's why there's going to have to be a, a um, maybe not physically impossible to implement, but they just, it just goes against what they want. And so uh, that's why there's going to have to be a, a house cleaning here when uh, Elon Musk comes in. And so that's always a very uh, tough thing to do. It's possible to do, um, you know, new CEOs come into companies and do it all the time. So we'll see how that goes for um, Elon uh, when he uh, gets into control. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about this from the New York Times. Uh, just from a two, day, two days ago, according to the New York Times, Elon Musk's Twitter will be a wild ride. The New York Times reports that we may actually be days away from Elon Musk being in total control of Twitter. Kevin Rose, author and uh, uh, author of this article in the New York Times, he makes some predictions. First, he predicts a revolt of what he calls a vulgarly progressive workforce that wants to promote, quote, healthy conversation. Uh, they're going to push back. But of course, <laughs> their definition of healthy conversation, he didn't write this, but the, the subtext is that their definition of healthy conversation is filtered through their very specific and narrow worldview. And so they're going to make sure that their worldview and way of thinking about things is the way uh, that um, Twitter is going to run their platform and is kind of the way Twitter and, and you know, Twitter is going to have to police how people talk about issues and how people say things, which is a really bad thing. And so those people are going to revolt, um, he predicts. Um, I'm guessing that this author kind of wants that to happen and he wants that pushback to happen, but even he kind of seems to admit like it's not really going to work, uh, but it, it will be kind of a headache for the new people who are in charge, uh, well, whether it Elon Musk himself, or also the people he hires, whoever he hires to be the CEO, and whoever he hires to be the new management. Rose says that Agrawal, the current CEO of uh, of Twitter, said that most employees, uh, in an email, said most employees actually share Musk's opinions on the future of the company, but Rose also claims that the people he has interviewed has said they would leave. So that's that kind of raises another question. Could it be that the people who dissent have stopped talking to the New York Times? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it makes sense that you would stop talking to the New York Times because the New York Times would be totally against you and would likely twist your words to make you look bad. So it is sort of a, um, it, the fact that the New York Times has done this to so many people for so long and it's the, the word has gotten out that you won't be fairly treated by the New York Times if you give them your opinion uh, means that the New York Times is not getting those people's opinions. They just and so the New York Times is, is kind of um, is kind of hinting, well, those people aren't sharing their opinions with us, then they must not exist. But we all know that, no, the New York Times has uh, the trust in the New York Times has completely broken down. And therefore, the people who disagree with the New York Times are not sharing their opinions with the New York Times. So the New York Times is not getting that news. And I I don't know what it's going to take for someone within the New York Times to point this out, but uh, that does seem to be the case. Um, second uh, prediction uh, is that, so um, is, so yes, he, he's saying that uh, there'll be a revolt and a lot of people will leave. Second prediction, Donald Trump will return to Twitter along with what he calls right-wing media vultures. Um, this also tells me that the New York Times is completely disinterested in anyone who has been kicked off of Twitter or shadow banned from Twitter, who cannot be characterized in this way 
as a right-wing media vulture. So they want to make it all about Trump, and they want to make it all about that, and they want to make it all about their enemies and their views. Um, other people got kicked off of, of Twitter, and other people have been treated unfairly about Twitter. Um, a, a lot of the more recent moderation and and and, and censorship uh, along with along with COVID has been a big deal. And as we've talked about the uh, in a previous episode, decentralizing uh, before our eyes, uh, that is going to be um, you know that if you look at what's going on in other countries, it's not necessarily the same form of censorship as it takes uh, in the U.S. And so Elon Musk can take a more objective view, saying no, we're, we're, you know, it's still going to be moderation, but essentially, if it's legal to say, you could say it. And so. Uh, that means we're not going to have a different bias in every country, uh, and um, and yeah, but the, but the New York Times is 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 really wants to make this a Democrat, Republican, or a, or a Trump or a, a right wing media vulture thing when really the principles of free speech are kind of timeless principles. These have been around uh, in Western civilization in the U.S. Uh, for centuries, and um, you know the idea of a town square where you can um, express your opinion in a democracy is, you know, should not be some kind of foreign, scary thing in the U.S. It's a messy thing to be sure, but it shouldn't be something that we should shy away from. Uh, Twitter kicking off Trump uh, 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 was a big deal. You know, it's not that we should um, um, uh, minimize that. It certainly showed their hands, and I think it showed, from Twitter's perspective, it showed their failure as a platform and as a management team to uh, cultivate their platform and their team uh, properly. But this isn't about all, this isn't all about so-called right-wing media vultures, and the New York Times doesn't even mention that. Um, do they believe that the only way to win at democracy is to suppress free speech? Could that even be called winning at democracy? Probably not. Um, but <laughs> that, that's going to be a whole other uh, discussion. I feel like I'd come up with some rhetorical name for it. Maybe somebody else who's a little bit more into that that sort of thing than I am can come up with some kind of rhetorical name for it or, or some 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 better use of the English language as to what that's called. I I I, I don't have. I seriously I don't I don't have a don't have a word for it. Um, so okay, third prediction from Kevin Rose is so first two was internal revolt. Uh, Trump returns. Uh, third is that Twitter will have a strong influence on the election of 2024. Um, is there an implicit uh, admission in that that Twitter had a strong influence on the election of 2020? Um, what if it was all hands on deck to get their candidate elected in 2020? And suppose they stopped doing that. Um, is that what's really scary? And so that question needs to be turned around and it needs to be, um, and, 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 and someone needs to ask the question of, okay, if we're worried that Twitter under the hands of Elon Musk is going to affect the election of 24, uh, why can't we just say that it affected the election of 2020? Um, and, uh, and, and, and how did they do it? And we know how they did it. We, you know, <laughs> we saw what they did. Uh, okay, number four, sunset features. Uh, Twitter is going to sunset uh, Twitter blue uh, blockchain initiatives. Interestingly enough, uh, Elon Musk uh, doesn't believe that Twitter on the blockchain is a good idea. 
I I would like to see a decentralized uh, social network. Maybe the maybe blockchain is not a good idea. Maybe it's it's more of a federation of these kind of uh, uh, of these kind of um, platforms, uh, a la Mastodon. Although uh, maybe not using Mastodon specifically, but taking the idea of Mastodon. Um, I think it's always a good thing to sunset features. Uh, you know, one of the first thing that Steve Jobs did when he took over, retook over Apple in the late 90s was look at all of the different product offerings and say, you know, this is a mess. Um, we're focusing on too many things and a lot of them don't have a real use case or a very compelling use case. And so we're going to focus on a very small number of things and make them the best. And so that might be a similar strategy here if we're going to sunset certain features and initiatives that Elon Musk believes will not work. Uh, for me, it would be nice to stop seeing people who are not in my feed. Uh, that's a feature I really uh, don't need. Um, I don't know if you guys see this, but oftentimes uh, when I go on Twitter, and I've been going on less and less, uh, although I did uh, re-sign up uh, recently. Now the Twitter deal, uh, must deal is back on just to see what's going to happen. Not re-sign up. I was always sign up, but like re-put it on my phone and, and start checking regularly again. But I continue to see people I do not follow on my feed uh, with unwanted tweets, and I don't know, um, yeah, I don't know how to deal with that. But it's certainly a waste of my time. The other two predictions are go after bots and build subscription features. Uh, you know, <laughs> Elon is kind of at war with these bots. We'll see how that goes. That might be a really interesting, um, a really interesting battle. Um, if you remember, if we go back way back to episode twenty-five. I believe we talked about the great Twitter purge of 2018. We were talking about this 2018. That was presumably against bots. You know, back then they said, all right, our big problem is that we have lots of bots. And so we're kicking off a lot of bots on the platforms. They, they said we're kicking off bots. We're not kicking off people. They kicked off some people, but it was mostly against bots. So will, uh, and, and that was kind of their first, um, th their first, uh, not their first, uh, ha not their first try at censorship, but that was kind of their justification for censorship, as though it was about bots. So we'll see if Elon goes that road, and if it if it ends up in the same place over the years, could. Uh, and, and the second and the sixth prediction is we're going to see a lot more subscription features. Uh, I guess that means monthly payments and things like that uh, that can generate a lot more revenue for Twitter. Uh, Politico has a headline, Elon Musk not about to light $44 billion on fire. The article is very contemptuous of Elon Musk, but admits he might be onto something. Uh, keep in mind, you know, his predictions about self-driving cars. He overpromises on self-driving cars. Uh, you know, he, he says, oh, we'll be fully self-driving in 18 months. And then 18 months goes by and, and we're not. But underneath that, uh, his company Tesla is still creating an amazing brand and product and still moving technology forward at a pretty incredible pace uh, if you didn't set the bar so high, uh, so impossibly high. So I don't know, maybe he does that. Maybe he pushes, maybe he shoots for the moon and then um, maybe he still gets extremely far. Maybe that's just his kind of way of doing things. Um, but there is speculation uh, about Musk from a tweet that he posted recently, which is, let me move this up. Um, he posted on Twitter, of course, buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. And that's it. That's all he wrote. Uh, so 
according to the a Bloomberg article, which I'll post all of this on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 247. Uh, this could include bookings, payments, and all sorts of other activities besides communications. If this is the case, then yes, he has a shot at recouping his $44 billion. All right. Now we move on to the news of PayPal, which is another Musk-funded company. Of course, he has to be involved in everything, although he's not involved in the company anymore, though it's still tangentially related to him. Anyway, PayPal, they're really stepping in it this week. Uh, Reading from a news article on Yahoo, PayPal has backtracked on a published policy that would have fined users $2,500 for spreading, quote, misinformation, claiming the update had gone out in error. An AUP notice recently went out in error that included incorrect information. PayPal is not fining people for misinformation, and this language was never intended to be inserted in our policy. Our teams are working to correct our policy pages. We're sorry for the confusion this has caused, a spokesman told National Review in a written statement. So this is pretty crazy. The question is, how does one screw up this bad? PayPal's former president, David Marcus, slammed the policy in a tweet Saturday, saying the new policy goes against everything I believe in. Um, A private company now gets to decide to take your money if you say something they disagree with. Insanity, Marcus tweeted. Uh, Elon Musk, the billionaire Tesla Inc. chief who co-founded PayPal. (laughs) I love how we have to relearn who he is after every article. Tweeted, agreed, uh, replied to Marcus. See, this guy just uh, post agreed and it gets into the article. Um, So something has gone terribly wrong. They said we're going to take $2,500 from you if you say something wrong. Uh, on anywhere in social media, not just PayPal. What was this? How, and then they, they said, just kidding. It was an error. Can you do that? What was this? Was this a trial balloon? Were they saying, let's put this out there and see how people react? And they saw people react badly. Uh, is this a miswording of some other policy that accidentally went out? Maybe it was a rejected proposal. Maybe some bonehead in the, uh, you know, in the, in the meeting there proposed that and it went into the notes and somehow it made it into their final copy. Or was it internal sabotage, someone trying to screw things up within the company by slipping that in there? In any of those cases that it could be, something has gone terribly wrong. I don't want to speculate that I know exactly which one. I've seen all, I've seen many of these. Well, the trial balloon idea is the one I've seen um, speculated on. It could be any of these others too. Uh, so this has hurt the PayPal brand, at least temporarily, uh, considerably, a number of people have pledged to stop using PayPal. Uh, I would say certainly don't depend on it. But the backlash was much stronger than you usually get uh, for this sort of thing, uh, which is which is good to see. People really don't want these companies uh, involved in uh, projects of ideological conformity and projects of, hey, you can use our product if you're like this, or if you say this, or if you say that. It doesn't matter your politics, it doesn't matter your opinions, it doesn't matter your beliefs. If we have a platform, if we have a product, you know, we should just apply it to everyone, and, and people really want that. Uh, so other than this, not much new information from the company. PayPal just said they put that out there, then they said, oh, that's a mistake, which, of course, <laughs> which, of course, doesn't answer a lot of questions. It still, still has a lot of questions. Leaves us a lot of questions up in the air, like what the heck happened at PayPal? And <laughs> okay, so final. This is another story that we've talked about in the past. The Biden administration has released its AI Bill of Rights. 
Yes, a new Bill of Rights for you folks. Uh, you know, I guess the old one from uh, 1789, or, or was it actually the way after that, 1790, 91? I guess that wasn't good enough. So now we have the AI Bill of Rights, which is not binding, but a set of guidelines and how the administration thinks that AI should be regulated. Uh, I spoke about this initiative from the administration around a year ago, uh, episode 195, Why We Sample. Let's review that a little bit. Um, I, I talked about how it's really hard to regulate math. math. Uh, you really don't regulate math and you really don't regulate algorithms. What they're really doing is they want control over decision-making. So they want to take any algorithm or uh, or machine learning model or whatever, uh, you know, it could be a large language model, it could be, a, could be an ad distribution model, uh, it could be a content distribution model. And whatever decisions are making are being made on top of, uh, based on that model, um, the government wants control over it. And they always go on the topics of discrimination and privacy, which sounds great. We want to get rid of it, but it's always kind of a, a foot in the door to get in. Um, and so uh, I also pointed out at the time that they have always have like vague offers of avoiding harm, which sound great. We're going to make sure you're not harmed, but um, it is really dangerous. In some ways, the AI Bill of Rights uh, give a bunch of kind of vague lip service to very good design and product principles. Uh, but I can't imagine this is what they want to do. You know, it, it's not just like, hey, we just want to make sure that you're, you've properly built out your test suite, you're running your unit tests, you're running your integration tests, uh, you've done all your usability testing to make sure that the, you, you, you've interviewed users to make sure that what they're getting, uh, what they think they're getting is what they're getting. No. That's not what these folks in government want their agencies doing all day. So I look for some hints in the wording to see what they might be wanting to do with this. Uh, and I'll go through this somewhat fast, but the first one is protecting people from unsafe or ineffective automated systems. Sounds great. I don't want to use something that's unsafe. I don't want to use something that's ineffective. Uh, I might as well not use it if it's ineffective. So they start by listing out some good engineering principles, but they really start out at making a nod to diversity which is, of course, a good idea. You want a lot of different people testing out your system, but it's a foothold for government to have a say in terms of staffing of AI projects it deems important. The second one, preventing discrimination by algorithms. They are very concerned about disparate impact. They want continuous and frequent equity assessment, essentially opening the door to extreme regulation of all software. Uh, a third one, safeguarding people from abusive data practices and giving them agencies agency over how their data is used. Uh, interesting because the government, particularly our intelligence agencies, but really all our agencies do nothing of the sort. Perhaps they just don't want competition in abusive data uh, practices and not giving people agencies over how their data is used, agency over how their data is used. But they want to make running online software exceedingly expensive with this regulation. So that's so once um, building this software becomes so expensive from a regulatory point of view, because if you just put out a little website on the internet, like it used to, it was cool, like, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, you could just build a website and put it on the internet and people start using it. Uh, but now, you know, you can get in big trouble for doing that. And so maybe they don't want individuals to do that. Maybe they only want uh, uh, large companies to do it, do it large corporations It'll help entrench the large corporations that are already in, in control of the internet, big tech, and it will make them much more easily easy to uh, to regulate um, because a lot of these companies, they, they want to be regulated. They kind of work with the government back and forth, whether it's Google, Facebook, you know, they are 
totally entrenched with the government. My prediction is, fortunately, there's no way all of this, uh, well, first of all, uh, unfortunately, there's no way this becomes a great privacy initiative. And all of a sudden, you know, they start um, making all these pronouncements. And now we've got our privacy back online. I mean, I hope I'm proven wrong, but I don't think this is what's going to happen. Very jaded by GDPR, which kind of ruined the internet. Um, Think about those accept cookie pop-ups. How many of those do you have during the day? Has that helped anyone anywhere ever? And I bet it's costed us uh, global economy, like tens of billions of dollars economically or something. I'm just doing that in my head, you know, figure lost productivity, several hundred a person plus engineering costs, regulatory costs, maybe some second order effects down there should get us to, uh, to something like that. Some, some multi-billion dollar price tag, uh, or maybe t- 10, tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, eight figures. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a big problem. And of course the costs of GDPR are, were huge, uh, for anyone who, who, who knows, um, who has gotten into the internet. And there's no one saying, wow, uh, you know, the internet was such a wild west before that we really had no privacy before GDPR and our data was really being misused before GDPR. And now everything is kind of going really well. I'm sure there are people who make the argument that like, Hey, it would have been worse without GDPR, but that's kind of, you know, hard to, it, it, it really is hard to compare. It really does seem like it, it, it did way more harm than good. And uh, these initiatives, if, if passed by the Biden administration, would do the same. Uh, another couple things they want is they want to inform people that an automated system is being used, kind of remind you of the cookie thing, which is always, always an automated system is being used. So you're going to be informed 100 times a day. Uh, and they want to let users opt out of automated systems, which, of course, you could already do by <laughs> turn, turn, you're, turning your computer off. It's all automated. Uh, <laughs> you, you really have to just disconnect from civilization at this point. Uh, fortunately, none of this is binding yet, so we'll see if it goes anywhere. We'll get a new election in a few weeks, new Congress next year that may not be so open to codifying this into law. What do you think about this so-called AI Bill of Rights Send an email to localmaxradio.com or on my locals at maximum.locals.com. I will totally read what you have to say uh, on the air or not, or I'll just respond to you on locals or or in email. Or you can arrange to call in, uh, which I will. I'll play our phone call here on the Local Maximum. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Uh, Doesn't matter what you have to say uh, within reason, but you could totally contradict what I'm saying. That's totally fine. All right. So now I believe it is time we shift gears for a little bit. And now the probability distribution of the week. All right. The probability distribution of the week. Today's probability, like as you know, uh, we started out by doing a lot of finite discrete probability distributions. Well, we're still on discrete. We've never done a continuous probability distribution on the local maximum. We will, but we're not going to start today. Um, But we went from kind of finite to infinite distributions. The last time we did the geometric distribution. But before that, we were doing kind of finite distributions like binomial distribution, categorical distribution, things like that. This one is we're going to have to step back to a finite distribution, but it sort of sets us up to going infinite in another way later. It's really important. It's something called Ziff's Law for language. Um, it's also called the Ziff Mandelbrot Law or the Pareto Ziff Law. I certainly want to tell you, uh, you know, 
where Mandelbrot comes in because meeting Benoit Mandelbrot was a was a big uh, even though I only met him for fifteen minutes and I I didn't end up taking the job he was offering it was like a a big moment in my life when I was at Yale uh, to to meet this guy um, who was incredible. Uh, mathematician, but really like the things he was interested in were, were just so interesting. Uh, and, and all the work, his, his work was just so interesting, like the, the stuff he chose to work on, uh, which, um, and then this is one of them. Uh, so anyway, what is, um, Ziff's law for language? Now, uh, y- you might have heard of something called the harmonic series, uh, so, or the, or the harmonic sequence. Um, and that goes, one, one half, one third, one fourth, one fifth, one sixth, so on and so forth, uh, all the way off to infinity. Um, and so the nth term is one over n. Now, you might think, hey, why don't we make a probability distribution out of that? And uh, I, I believe you can, but you just have one problem. And that one problem is that that, uh, that sequence does not uh, converge. Uh, it, 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 it goes off to infinity. So you can't make a, you can make a non-standard probability distribution, uh, from it. Um, I've talked about that before, but you really can't make a standard, you know, obeys all the Kamal-Gurov laws distribution out of it, but there, it's still used because, uh, you can, well, there are two ways to fix it. Uh, the, 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 the second way to fix it, we'll, we'll start with the second way because we're not, we'll use the first way. Uh, the first way to fix it is to, uh, chop it off at some point. So it goes on for thousands of terms, tens of thousands of terms, and basically you chop it off and you say, this is, there's a large number of categories here, but it's not infinite. And one of the nice things about that series, one plus a half plus a third plus a fourth plus a fifth, is that even though it goes off to infinity, it goes off to infinity very slowly. So even if you chop it off like at a million, you're not going to get to a very high number. Uh, so it's kind of reasonable. It's kind of you can you can uh, you know it's manageable if there's a small if 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 you kind of turn it make it finite, even if the finite is uh, uh, even if the finite's very large. Um, and then if you want infinite to work, which will deal with another time, you could take the denominator to some kind of exponent, like square the denominator or something. But uh, that's that's the generalized Zipf's law or Ziffian distribution. We'll talk about that another time. But this time we'll talk about the finite uh, version. Why, why finite? Because this is actually used in nature and in natural language. And it, it appears in language all the time. If you take any language and look at the frequencies of words that are used in this language. This is very much related to natural language processing. If you look at the most frequent word uh, and, and you label that, you know, X, one X is, is the frequency. Then you look at the next most frequent word and it will often be one half X. And then you look at the, the, the next most frequent word and it will often be a third X and so on and so forth. And so if you stack up the frequencies of all the words, and if you, you can think of this as a categorical distribution where every word uh, is a different category. And basically, you're pulling random words from random texts, uh, from random sentences in, in random documents, or just you know, random words from a corpus over here. Uh, and so it follows this law of one, one half, one third, et cetera. Now, the, the Mandelbrot addition to it 
is to kind of shift it around. So you could kind of start in the middle. So maybe uh, maybe if the first one is a third X, then it goes a third X, a fourth X, a fifth, a fifth X, a sixth X, and so on and so forth. So it might not start, you know, one, one half, but, you know, it, it often does. And so it's really fascinating that this works um, for any language, uh, any natural language. It works for a lot of things. It has some interesting... Um, it has some interesting uh, um, kind of uh, applications in, in things like economics, consumer choices, in biology, um, you know, things that, that nature tries to do. And I think it's related to the fact that, um, you know, when you have a large number of categories, you tend to, um, sometimes you want to go out into the long tail and you want to find something that's very uncommon to give a specific meaning or in the case of an ecosystem, to have like a specific purpose. But then you have your kind of bread and butter words, the words that you say all the time, like the word the, which is probably your one here, uh, you know, the, the, the most frequent word, the, the most frequent word is the, um, that will be your one X. Maybe the second one is, uh, I don't know what's it. Let me see if I can look up the frequency of words on the, on the spot here, because that would kind of be good to have a... Uh, um, that would be kind of good to have like a, a baseline. Uh, how come uh, now I need to find a website that starts zero? I wish I, uh, I wish I had uh, uh, put that. How about if I said top 100 words? That might, that might help here. Most common words in English, right? Okay, good. There's one in, um, there's one in Wikipedia. All right. So the first one is the, and the second one is B, B-E, and the third one is two. So the might be your one, B might be your half, and two might be your third, and of might be your fourth. So you might get something like that. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it's a Mandelbrot zip where it, it kind of starts in the middle there. But, um, but those are kind of your, your common words that kind of string things together that you want to use often. So I guess that's the point I was making is that you have your common words where you have a common, um, you know, you want to string things together. And then every once in a while, you have something that is a specialized tool uh, and you need to reach further down into the distribution. So you have your common tools and your specialized tools. And I think naturally, for some reason, that comes together into forming this zipped Mandelbrot law, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, so again, related to the harmonic series, and um, it is... It is uh, finite, but long. Uh, there, there is a little bit of confusion between the finite version and the infinite version. I guess we'll get to the infinite version another time. Uh, but that is our probability distribution of the week. Yep, maybe I should put these all together and try to write about them a little more and make a little, uh, you know, make a little presentation on them so we're a little bit more uh, um, uh, deliberate about learning these things. But I just like talking about them. If you found this interesting... Go on our locals, local uh, maximum.locals.com. I, uh, I we have we have some really great discussions on there, uh, or I, I get a lot of really good feedback on there. I really like my group there. All right, so uh, send me an email, and uh, yeah, that's it for today. Next week, I did a really cool. If you're into engineering, I did a really cool interview with someone from Foursquare. I haven't spoken to someone from Foursquare in a really long time, and uh, we talked about algorithms for pinpointing locations on the world and how tiling the world in hexagons might be the best idea for that. And so we talk about how that works a little bit. All right. Uh, I think that's it for today. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. 
to support the local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.